Well, I have heard your complaints. It's too much, too fast, and you can't write it all down. Sorry. Or not sorry, as Reese's would say, not sorry. I told someone this morning, I don't know of another pastor who would try to get through the book of Revelation in 12 weeks, but that's just how I roll, so uh, we'll make it work. You can always go online and, uh, and go back and listen uh, if you need to. All right, last week, the destruction of Babylon, chapter 18. After that, actually the first five verses this week were part of last week, uh, a celebration breaks out in heaven. You see the word hallelujah, or it may say hallelujah in, in your Bible, which is a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word hallelujah. First time it is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's actually only mentioned here in the book of Revelation. Look what they are, are giving praise to God for, verse 1, for salvation. What an amazing thing that we have, we have been saved, and, and that it's a process. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. We were justified by Christ at the moment we accepted his gift for us. We're in the process of being sanctified, made more and more like Christ, and when we get to this time in our history, we'll be glorified as we're joined together with Christ. You know, I was talking to someone this week. Uh, I was working out at the gym, talking to a guy that goes to another church. He was talking about his salvation experience. He said, you know, I, I just don't know the specific time that that happened. He said, what I do know is my desire is to live for Christ as Lord of my life. And I said to him, well, you know, you may not know the exact day, the exact hour. You may not know the exact words you prayed. In fact, you don't have to pray a certain exact prayer. But if there's been a point where you've committed your life to Christ, it'll be evident in your life by what you just said, your desire to live with Christ as Lord and, and to keep doing that on a daily basis. And I like to word it this way. <clears throat> you know that justification has occurred in a person's life when you see sanctification occurring. When you see someone growing to be more and more like Christ, it's evident, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit, it's evident that they've been justified, they've been made right with Christ. So they're, they're praising him for salvation. Look at verse 2. They're praising him for his judgments. His judgments are true and righteous. Why are they praising him for that? It was right for him to destroy Babylon. These that are praising him in heaven for his, his justice are not, not with a vengeful or rejoicing attitude over the destruction of Babylon. They're just praising God because he is fair. You know, a lot of people look at some of the things that God has done through Scripture, specifically the destruction of certain peoples who were rebellious against him, and they would say, well, I don't want anything to do with your God. God is, God is not fair, and, and God is unjust. Look at all the people he's destroyed. Listen, God only destroys, only judges and destroys those who persist in sin and rebellion. All through Scripture, you see what, what Peter worded in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance, to faith in Christ. And we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, in these end-time events that's going to happen, specifically during the seven years of tribulation, we have seen incredible patience. In the midst of the destruction, God has been incredibly patient. He could have just wiped the entire earth out day one, but no, he has brought these judgments not just to judge those who are rebelling against him, but provide opportunity for some to consider their circumstance and through his patience come to faith in Christ. Verse 6, praise him for salvation, for his judgments. Verse 6, for his eternal reign. One thing I hope you've gathered as we've walked through Revelation in these weeks is this. 
God is in control. Have you heard that around here much the last few weeks? Say it with me. God is in control. They are praising the fact that God is in control. He will reign eternally in eternity. Those who belong to him will flourish under his benevolent reign, and they will gladly call him King of kings and Lord of lords. They'll be thrilled that he is in control, not them. Chapter 19, look at verses 7 through 9. Here's the fourth reason for rejoicing. They're rejoicing for the time has come for the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is that? Well, it's the final stage in the union of a believer with Christ. The union of the believer with Christ has four stages, just like Jewish weddings. We are called the bride of Christ. It's no surprise that Jewish weddings symbolize exactly what it means, what it looks like for those who come to Christ. Here's the four stages. Stage one, the selection. Now, some of you children and teenagers are about to really be wigged out, but this is actually what happened. When a young man was a child, his father would go and select a bride for his son. And it worked pretty well. They certainly didn't have the divorce rate we do today. Just saying, you might want your parents involved in that process. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) So you have the selection process. What did Paul say about our selection? Ephesians 1.4, before creation, he, God, chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. God selected us. The second stage was a betrothal. The betrothal was similar to our um, period of engagement. But it was different in that the betrothal was much more permanent. The betrothal could only be ended by divorce. So once you entered into this arrangement, this betrothal, it was permanent. Listen, when you trusted Christ, when you accepted the offer of salvation, you became betrothed to him. And during the betrothal period, the bride and groom would prepare. The bride would prepare for the festivities. She would prepare her wedding dress. She would make her wedding dress. She would prepare her bridesmaids. The groom would prepare for the place that they would live, and that place would be a room built where? In his father's house. In his father's house. Stage three of the wedding process in the Jewish culture was the marriage. It was the the presentation. The groom, when he had completed his arrangements and, and built the room in his father's house, would come to the bride's home and he would take her to receive her and take her to his father's house. They would be married and the marriage celebration lasted several days and there was the marriage supper. It was a celebration uh, of, of, of a lengthy party basically given by the bridegroom's family. And there you have the picture of our salvation in Christ. And you see he's talking here about the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're rejoicing that the time has come when the betrothal is over because now there is a marriage. The relationship has been consummated in a marriage and this incredible lengthy party that for us will last for all of eternity. Now look what he says in verses 7 and 8. He says, The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's he talking about here? You remember that for believers, 
There are several different judgments in Scripture. For believers, the judgment is called the Bema, the Bema seat of Christ, so the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment uh, of condemnation. It's a judgment of reward. We will all stand as believers before the Bema seat of Christ, and he will reward us based on the things that we have done in the body. The things we've done for ourselves will be burned up. But all of the righteous deeds will survive and will be our reward. That's why the bride of Christ is going to be allowed to be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, because that represents righteousness. Now, look in verses 11 through 16. This, this is the climax of history. The second coming of Christ is mentioned over 1,800 times in 27 Old Testament books. That many times it's referred to prophetically as yet to come. It's mentioned 300 times in 23 of the New Testament books. For every prophecy of the coming of Christ, there are eight for the second coming. Eight times as many prophecies about the second coming as the first coming. Look at, look at what John sees in the second coming. Verse 11, he sees a rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True. And of course, the white horse pictures military victory. That's what would happen when, when the Romans went and, and conquered. The conquering general would ride back in in his victory celebration on a white horse. Well, you remember that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week before the crucifixion on a donkey. Symbol of humility. But now he comes as a conquering king. John says his name is faithful and true as contrast to Satan who's a liar and a deceiver. Why is Jesus faithful and true? Well, he's demonstrating right here he's keeping his promise to return for us and to establish his kingdom on earth just as he had said he would do. Verse 11, he judges and makes war in righteousness. Again, there is nothing unjust about his judgment. The world has been saturated by this point, not just before but even during the tribulation, been saturated with the gospel message. The world has had opportunity. Now he comes to make judgment. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. What does that mean? Perfect discernment. He sees uh, everything for what it is. On his head are many diadems, crowns, symbolizing his authority. He's the ultimate authority. He has all authority. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. He has a name written which no one knows but himself. Now, you know what's funny about that? If you pick up different commentaries and read them, there are all kind of speculations on this name, but it clearly says no one knows the name but himself. It's a complete mystery. We, we have no idea what that name is, but perhaps it will be revealed to us when we join him in heaven. Verse 13, you've heard this line in a song, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, at first glance, you would assume that if Jesus is wearing this robe, this white robe, and it's dipped in blood, you would assume it is his blood. It's, it's the blood of his sacrifice. It symbolizes the atonement that he made for us, but that's not whose blood it is. Going back to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah clarifies this. The one who comes to tread the winepress of God's wrath has the blood of those who experience God's fury sprinkled on his garments. So it's not his blood. It's the blood of those who are going to experience the wrath of God. Look, look down real quick at verse 15. It tells us that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. 
You see, Jesus, when Jesus came the first time, Jesus shed his blood to atone for the sin of those who would repent and would turn to him and receive him as Lord. Now the time for grace has passed. There is no more opportunity. And when this rider, when Jesus appears, God's vengeance is going to be poured out on all mankind. Verse 13, he's called the word of God. We know he's the word of God. John told us in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was, was with God. Not anything was made. that was not made at his word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of God. He's the word. But what we need to remember here in Revelation is the power of the word. In the opening vision that we looked at uh, 10 weeks ago, as well as right here again in verse 15, it says that John sees the Lord Jesus with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. What is that sword? It's, it's the word. And he says that with the word he will strike down nations and rule with a rod of iron. Do you remember the scene in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus? Jesus and the disciples were there. Judas was leading the, uh, the chief priest. Uh, the, the temple guard plus the Roman guard, all these guys coming armed, even though Jesus and his disciples had no arm, crazily outnumbered. And do you remember when um, they asked, or Jesus asked them, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. When he said, I am he, you know what happened? They all fell down. That's how powerful his word is. They were armed, they, were, they had outnumbered Jesus and the disciples, but when he said, I am he, they all fell to the ground on their faces. Listen, Jesus is going to destroy his enemies just by speaking the word of judgment. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, notice These armies, it says they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They're not dressed for battle. You don't ride into battle in fine linen, white and pure. So who is this? Look back in verse 8. The bride is clothed in what? White linen, bright and pure. We're going to be with him when he returns. We're not going to be fighting. We're not part of the army that's going to fight. We're there to be part of the victory celebration, the victory parade. Verse 16, he has a fourth name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, when Jesus comes, all the false kings, including the Antichrist, who required people to bow and and worship them, are going to be exposed, and Jesus is going to be vindicated as the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's what Paul said in Philippians 2, every knee will bow. Those who are on earth, those who are under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for you and me, that's going to be an awesome moment when we make that confession. All right, I need to give a word of warning about the next couple of verses here. If the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, puts you on edge... You might want to close your eyes and ears to verses 17 and 18. The great supper of God. This is not the marriage supper of the Lamb, okay? The marriage supper of the Lamb, if you get to attend that, you're an honored guest. The great supper of God, the attendees are the main course. Big difference. Not going to be a battle when Jesus returns. It's going to be a slaughter. 
And you see in verses 17 and 18, the birds of the air invited to come feast on the flesh of those who prepare to war against the lamb. So here's what happens. When Jesus appears, uh, the armies are, are gathered, and you see it says there, they will see and hear this angel call the birds. Now imagine you're in this army and you're gathered. You see and hear this angel call the birds to feast on your flesh. And then perhaps in that moment, you see trillions of birds of carrion headed your way. I don't know about you, but I, I'm throwing down my weapons and I'm surrendering. I'm giving up. I, I'm going I'm to repent and beg for mercy. It's not what happens. Look at verse 20. The beast and the false prophet, they're leading this army. The beast and false prophet are captured. They're thrown alive into the lake of the fire. Now, the lake of the fire, the lake of fire is where all the unsaved will be sent after their eternal judgment. It's a place of eternal judgment and torment. There's nowhere else to go after that. They're thrown, the beast and false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 21. Now, the two leaders, the beast and false prophet, they've been, they've been snatched away. And, you know, if you're one of the kings under the beast and false prophet and, and you're leading this army, what are you thinking? You know what? At that point, you don't even have a moment to think. As soon as they're thrown in the lake of fire, before those gathered can even process what has happened, they are slain, look, by the sword coming out of the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. Jesus destroys this vast army with the word of his mouth. He simply speaks, and they're destroyed. And the rebellion is over with a word from the king of kings. You know, when I was reading that this week again, I almost just started laughing out loud. I thought, wow, you know, we, we speak about and we sing about the power of God. We ain't got a clue. He speaks the word and they're destroyed. Well, you know, when we started Revelation, it, it was, I'm sure it seemed rather daunting to you as it did to me. It's kind of like a a million-piece jigsaw puzzle with no picture on the box lid. But it's starting to come together. We're, we're getting down to the final uh, pieces of the puzzle. And I don't know about you, but it's been fascinating to me to see the plans and purposes of God take shape. Just a fascinating study. Chapter 20, two more very significant pieces, the millennial reign and the great white throne judgment. This week I was reminded of a story I read sometime back about a little girl who heard a sermon on the millennial reign, and she got home and she asked her dad, I'm not sure why, she asked her dad, hey, what's a millennial? He said, well, a millennial is just like a centennial, only it has a lot more legs. <laughs> There's some truth there. There's some. Hopefully, if you have confusion about the millennial reign, we'll clear that up today. But let me, by the way, let me say to you dads, you know, instead of making something up, you might just use that tried and true solution. Go ask your... Your mother. Go ask your mother. All right, before we dive into chapter 20, you need to know that this uh, chapter, this passage is one of the greatest... Uh, doctrinal battlegrounds of Scripture. And I don't want to get off in the weeds, so I'm going to try to keep it fairly simple. There are three views about the millennial reign. There's the pre-millennial view, there's the ah-millennial view, and there's the post-millennial. I'll get to pre-millennial in just a moment. Let me very briefly 
Okay, don't, don't beat me up, you scholars. Let me just very briefly, simply explain these other two views. The amillennial view, uh, amillennials believe there's no literal 1,000-year reign. They believe that God's kingdom on earth began uh, the first advent when Christ first came and will culminate when he comes the second time. They believe that Satan is presently bound. He is bound in our day. They believe the kingdom, is, the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature, meaning uh, Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. It's not a literal reign on or over the earth. Postmillennials believe the kingdom is present during the current age. They don't believe it's a literal thousand years. They believe that's just symbolic of a, of a long period of time. Postmillennials believe that the world is going to get better and better as the gospel is preached and the world becomes more uh, Christianized. And they believe that this uh, period of improvement of the world getting better and better will crescendo into a golden age, and at that point, uh, Christ will return. Now, I'm going to approach the passage from the viewpoint of a pre-millennial because I believe the earthly millennial reign of Christ is literal. That's my own personal belief. Certainly, there's symbolism in Scripture. Um, we certainly see symbolism, symbolism revelation. We just looked in chapter 19 where John said he saw a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. That's just symbolic. It's symbolic of the Word of God. Um, so that's not literal. But when I look at Scripture, unless it's clear that something's symbolic, my default is to uh, read it and to understand it as literal. So I believe based on what I'm reading here in chapter 20, that Christ is literally going to set up his kingdom on earth uh, for a thousand years. It's written here, and it also fulfills uh, Old Testament prophecies concerning the reign of Messiah on earth. So we're going we're to approach this this morning from the view of a pre-millennialist. But let me, let me stop and say this. This is not an essential doctrine. What you believe about the millennium, listen, what you believe about the rapture, if you're a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib, those two things are not essential doctrines. They're not going to affect your salvation. What are essential doctrines? The virgin birth, the sinless life, the literal crucifixion and death on the cross, the resurrection. Those are essential doctrines. These things are not essential doctrines. We can disagree. I, I've got a, a great friend who's an amillennialist. In fact, several years ago during a study in Revelation, he was seated right about out here, and I mentioned I was a premillennialist, and I made the comment, hey, when we're both ascending up to heaven, we're not going to be looking at each other talking about who's right and who's wrong. It's not going to matter at that point. Okay, so don't get, don't get hung up on that. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, look what happens. Satan is bound. Notice he's not thrown into the lake of fire like the beast and the false prophet. Remember, they were thrown into the lake of fire, the, the final judgment place. He's not thrown into the lake of fire. He's bound and thrown into the pit or the abyss. You remember that from a couple of weeks ago? He's put there for a thousand years. What does that tell you? Well, we're going to see him again. Verses 4 through 6. A couple of good questions. First of all, who is on the earth to reign over? Who is there that, that Jesus is going to come and set up his millennial kingdom? And those of us who come with him or are part of reigning with him over that kingdom, who is it? Well, it's people who came to Christ during the tribulation and survived. They're still alive on earth at the end of the tribulation. Who are those who are going to reign with Jesus? Who are those that are given the authority to judge? Well, 
We know that Jesus told the disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. We know very clearly that Israel is a key, uh, has a crucial role in these last days. So we know the disciples are going to be those who rule and who judge. We know that Jesus told the believers at Thyatira that all overcomers will rule with him. And we know that Paul told the Corinthians, do you not know that the saints will judge the world. So apparently those who will judge and reign with him are Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and a group you see mentioned here in verse 4, tribulation saints. So all the saints will be reigning with Christ. Look at verse 5. This is key to understand. Verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life. Well, who are the rest of the dead? Well, the saints have all been resurrected, so that's unbelievers. They're not part of the first resurrection. You want to be part of the first resurrection. You don't want to be part of the second resurrection. Now, what about the millennium? What do we need to know about the millennium? Let me just explain very quickly just a few features of what the millennium will look like based on what we know from Scripture. First of all, in the millennium, there will be peace. And if you're taking notes and want to look up some references, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 in Isaiah 66, 12, and 13, there will be peace on the earth during this millennial reign. Listen to the words of Malachi chapter 4, verse 3. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Well, why are they going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? Because they won't need a sword. They won't need a spear. So what are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to turn them into, I guess, melt them down, beat them into farm implements. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war anymore. So be peace all over the earth during this millennial reign. Secondly, human life is going to be long. We find that in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 20. You know, just as in the early days, if you go back to Genesis, in the early days of mankind before sin had its cumulative effect on us, men lived much, much longer lives, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years long. And so human life, because of the the lack of those ongoing effects of sin, human lifespans are going to be greatly increased during the millennium. Now, let me, let me say this, that doesn't apply to those of us who are already saved and in our glorified bodies. Again, this is referring to the people who accepted Christ during the tribulation and were still alive in their physical bodies going into the millennial kingdom. You don't have to worry about how long your life's going to be. It's going to be eternally long at that point. Third, there's going to be harmony between man and animals. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, 6 through 8. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The cow will feed with the bear. A little child will lead them. Listen to this, moms. This is really cool. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Did you just see that, putting your little infant down to play with the cobras? Fourth, holiness will prevail, Isaiah 35, 8. Think about how wearisome it is in our world today to live with a constant bombardment of godlessness and immorality. It just wears on us. Well, during the millennial reign, when Christ rules and reigns, the world is going to be filled with holiness and righteousness. Completely different feeling and atmosphere. Now, in the midst of this utopia, and there are many other things we could look at on the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom, in the midst of this utopia, knowing what's coming, knowing that there's a new heaven and a new earth, you might ask the question, why even have a millennial reign? Why didn't Jesus just come, wipe out all the evil, wicked people, and then just take everyone, uh, all the believers and all the new believers, straight into the new heaven and new earth? 
Let me give you three reasons for the millennial reign. Number one is fulfillment of prophecy. In, in Psalms and Isaiah and, and Luke, there are these prophecies of the millennial reign. Secondly, the millennial reign is an answer to prayer that saints, including you and I, a prayer that we've prayed for, for generations, for centuries. You know what that prayer is? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Say the next part. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's coming to set up his kingdom on earth. Let me tell you the third reason, though, and this one is probably going to be a surprise. One of the purposes of the millennial reign is to reemphasize man's depravity and the necessity of Christ's death. Let me kind of unpack that a little bit. During the millennium, the faithful ones during the tribulation who survive, who enter the millennium in their physical bodies, will get married, they'll live life, they'll have children. And with a longer lifespan and, and a higher birth rate, the population on earth is going to increase significantly during the millennium. I know we've talked about a third was wiped out, uh, another quarter was wiped out, half was wiped out. All these things that happened, and you might have in your mind, well, there aren't many people left. True, but the repopulation during the thousand-year reign is going to happen rapidly. However, those who were born are going to have a sin nature. They're human. And man's fallen nature is not going to be eliminated until eternity begins. So during the millennial reign, there will be people born to these believers and then the generations that follow from that, and none of those people are born a, a Christian. They're not born a Christian. No one's born a Christian. Every one of them who are born during the millennium are going to have to come to the point of placing their faith in Christ for salvation. Now, we can assume under such a godly uh, conditions in the millennium that many will receive Christ, but not all of them will. No, there's not an open rebellion led by Satan, but many will still not come to faith. Think about how it is today. Let's, let's talk about teenagers or perhaps um, young adults that you and I know that are from strong uh, Christian families. They've, they've grown up, they've been reared in a, in a Christian home. They, they may cooperate with their parents, even to the point of, of attending church every week. But in their hearts, they've never made a personal commitment to Christ. And you and I may not even know that unless we really know the family well, looking at the, at the outward appearance, because they conform outwardly, but inwardly, although they conform outwardly, inwardly, there's no conversion. Sinners don't become sinners because of a bad environment. Lucifer was in a perfect environment when he rebelled against God. Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect environment when they rebelled against God. So even in the millennium, that you and I would consider a perfect environment, even with Satan bound, even with Satan not there to, to tempt people, even with the incredible personal presence of Christ, some are still going to follow their depraved heart. And during the millennium, as the population growth is very rapid and expansive, there will be many people who don't choose to follow Christ. 
Look at verses 7 through 10. Here's, here's the answer to why Satan was bound and not yet destroyed. Chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. You see that Satan is released one final time to deceive those who are apart from Christ. Now look at this phrase. Their number is like the sand of the sea. A lot of people during the millennial reign, even though Christ is in control, sin is not going to run rampant, there are not going to be wars and, and men killing men, even though those things are not happening, there are still people with a depraved heart that do not surrender to Christ. And in the end, look what happens. They, they band together and they come against Jerusalem. That's the capital where Jesus is reigning. And when they come as this vast army against Jerusalem, against Christ, that final rebellion is crushed. What happens? Fire from heaven consumes them, and then Satan is thrown in the lake of fire, the place of final judgment and torment. It's a sad thing to think about, isn't it? During this incredible period of peace and, and prosperity, this millennium on earth, there will still be some people, in spite of seeing all the blessings of God, there will still be some people who choose to turn from him. Verses 11 through 15, chapter 20, wrapping it up, the great white throne. What is this? It's the judgment of unbelievers. Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. It's unbelievers. And what happens is all the unbelievers throughout all of history are resurrected and brought to judgment. This is the second resurrection. And they're brought to judgment and there's no place to hide from the judge and the judge is Jesus. And the judgment is based on whether or not their name is written in the book of life, whether or not they belong to Christ. Now, you might question this in verses 12 and 13. It says they were judged according to what they had done. Well, what does that mean? Well, there were books that, that show, there will be books that show what their deeds were, what their acts were when they lived in a human body, but it's not about did they have enough deeds. What the reason, the purpose of those books is to show them that even their good works are not enough. See, for the unbeliever, no matter, no matter how good a person you are, your works are not enough righteousness to earn you a place in heaven. Isaiah said your best works of righteousness are like filthy rags. And so the purpose of those books is to show them that what they needed was a relationship with Christ. And then the book of life, Jesus will ask, he already knows the answer, but Jesus will ask, is this one's name in the book? And the answer will be no. And so they're sent, they're judged, and they're sent to the lake of fire. Well, what do we get? What does chapter 19 and 20 say to us? The first thing we saw in chapter 19 is we need to celebrate. Do you know Christ? You should regularly celebrate the fact that you're saved, that you've experienced the mercy and grace of God. In the world that we live in, when it's frustrating sometimes to see evil running rampant, we need to celebrate that God is a just God. We don't have to worry about all that stuff. God's going to take care of it. We, we need to celebrate his eternal reign. No matter what is happening today, no matter how, how out of control life seems for you, God is in control, and you, as a follower of Christ, are going to experience his eternal reign, and all the stuff of this world you're going to forget. When you get to that point, it's not going to matter. I think these chapters need to remind us of the incredible power of God with just a word. You know, he, he created with just a word, didn't he? He just spoke the word and it came to be. 
And I guess you could say, looking at what we've just looked at in chapter 19 and 20, he uncreated with just a word. He just spoke a word and destroyed all of his enemies, all those living in rebellion. They had plenty of opportunity. We need to remember that that same power is available to us for living, for life. I think another point of application is to ask ourselves, for me to ask myself, am I preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember during the betrothal period, the woman was preparing what she needed to repair. The, the groom was preparing, and the groom is Christ. The groom was preparing the place for her, but she had a work of preparation to do as well. Am I preparing myself? Am I thinking about the bema seat when I will stand before Christ and, and be judged, be rewarded for what I've done that was for him? And am I preparing others for what's to come? There are many people that won't be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They'll be at the great supper of God. They'll be at the great white throne judgment. Am I I telling them about that? Finally, I would say to all of us this morning, I recognize the majority of those who gather here week to week have a relationship with Christ, but we all need to remember no one is born a Christian. It doesn't matter if you conform to the society around you, you conform to, to what's happening in your home, you cooperate with your parents, you, you go to church to make them happy. None of that matters. What matters is whether or not in, in your life and in your heart there's been a point of surrender. By nature, you and I are rebellious. We, we have to surrender. It doesn't matter how much we cooperate or conform. It's got to be a confession of Christ as Lord in this life, not just the life to come.